0: Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Pilati. I don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling super relaxed right now because I just spent the last three days in a cabin in the middle of nowhere in the Poconos. So in Pennsylvania, had never been there before, but it was very much like the middle of nowhere on a lake, very peaceful, like serene, like no people around. I think I counted like full on, counted like four people, humans, other human beings like in this area that I was like that I saw with my own two eyes because we were in the cabin a lot. It was really, really just such a nice reset, especially after having a crazy couple of weeks in the city where the city is super loud and buzzing and bustling all the time. It was nice to get away. And now I feel fully charged again to bring you guys a lot of great content this week. This episode of the pod includes a really awesome story from history that I had never heard about. One of you guys DM me about this. So thank you so much for bringing this to my attention because it's a really interesting tale with some presidential origins. I love a presidential drama because it kind of resembles almost like high school cliques. Like Politics is kind of like high school or like political figures kind of resembles high school. So really great story to share with you guys today about a bold woman from history. Of course, you guys know I love talking about bold women who were seen as being crazy for their time, but now it's all too normal to be outspoken and stand firm in your beliefs. And so it's just really interesting the stark contrast between what is acceptable today. Still, obviously people get on women, like, you know, in the sense of like, just, okay, kind of cue Taylor Swift, the man, that song really just encompasses the whole ideal of like, or idea surrounding like women are a problem if they are outspoken and loud, but it's definitely much more accepted now than it used to be. And so our story today is going to take us back to 18th century America. But before we get there, I do want to kind of recap my mountain uh, wilderness Airbnb experience, because I have to say like, this is your sign. If you've been considering getting out of your busy city or college town or wherever the heck you are in this given moment, you want some quiet, you want some just nature, Like this, this is my recommendation to you. This is the sign that you should do it. Because, you know, honestly, when we got the rental car and we were heading out of the city, I was like, oh no, like I have so much going on in my, you know, my work and stuff. And I really need to be focused and at home and whatever. But I have to say being in nature recharged me in such a great way. And honestly, I was more productive in this cabin, like got more done because there were just like, absolutely zero distractions like no distractions at all no like people texting me saying hey let's go here or do this or whatever i mean there were but i was like sorry i you can't reach me i'm out of state i am you know finding my bliss finding my zen in this cabin it was really beautiful too it's called the green light lodge in the poconos on lake ariel if you guys are familiar with the area really amazing cabin it was inspired by the great gatsby that's why it's called the green light lodge because you guys might remember if you've read the book or seen the movie the green light was like gatsby's green light to daisy across across the way if you guys remember the book the entire cabin was f scott fitzgerald 20s inspired i guess the couple that owns the place is very into antiquing and collecting things like i can't imagine what their actual home looks like like the home they live in majority of the year because this place was gorgeous there's like antiques in every nook and cranny but in a very tasteful in tasteful fashion like looked beautiful felt so homey there was like a, a fireplace there was a a fire pit in the backyard or like not a fire pit it was like a gas fire thing we just pushed a button and it turned on it was like incredible it was you know the whole camping or not camping but like being in the wilderness experience without any work involved. We just like hung out. They literally provided marshmallows and sticks and we like made s'mores and made cookies and like we had a taco night. Like it was so wholesome and cute of us. And I'm so, so happy we did it. Got out of the city for a few days because now I feel so recharged and ready to be in the hustle and bustle again. You know, it's nice to just get out and then come back. And honestly, every single time I leave the city, I miss it so that means I must like where I live. I must be must be doing the right thing for myself in this given chapter of my life. If you miss the place that you live so much when you leave, even for just a few days, I think that's a sign. So it was great to get out. I linked the Airbnb all over my Instagram and I'm gonna post a vlog in a few days about our trip. So check that out if you guys uh, want more details on the place that I stayed, which was great. But honestly, when we were there, we also, the three of us, it was me, Adam, and Colby, my two like closest friends in the city. And we were just talking about all these different things we want to do, like business ventures, things we want to do in the next like five years. Like it was really great just to talk to each other and not, you know, be at a bar or at a restaurant or, you know, at our apartments stressing about things and whatever. It was very nice to be out of our element in that way, because we talked about really awesome stuff. And one of those things being that we want to start a podcast, the three of us, about New York City dating and just connections in general, like friendships, things like that, like making connections in your 20s, because it's very hard. It's hard to make new friends in your 20s, like much harder than it was when we were, you know, children, I feel for most of us, that's like a generalization but it's also hard in the technological age to make connections romantically with all these apps and like, how do you get off the apps? And we were talking about that and about how, you know, we have these really awesome commu- or communications. We have these awesome conversations, just the three of us. And we're like, why don't we record these and put them somewhere? So we actually recorded two episodes while we were in the Poconos for our new podcast. I'm not going to reveal the name yet, but we're going to start it. It's going to be live. I think, yeah, next Tuesday, I believe. So I guess it's like the 28th or something of September. We're going to start the podcast. It's going to be cool. Like just obviously another thing on my plate because I'm going to edit it and do all the production myself, but it's a cool project and it's always fun doing something with your friends that you're super excited about. So stay tuned for that. I know I've gotten a lot of feedback from you guys saying you wish I talked more about life stuff and like all of that on my podcast, but I am like, having fun with the history stuff. So I'm going to continue to do that here. My storytelling, my psychology, like all of my interests here, but our new podcast is going to really just like dive deep into the real world of New York, just in your twenties doing the thing. Okay. In whatever way that may be. And it's not just going to be about dating. It's going to be about everything that we just go through in our twenties, because I feel like it's one of those things where you're kind of expected just to know and to figure it out. And like, Who the heck has ever taught us how to talk to someone on a dating app or how to make a friend, how to DM someone and get coffee with someone without seeming creepy? Like, how do you do that stuff? How do you connect with people out and about? How do you, uh, you know, make business connections? How do you start something new in the city that doesn't have to do with your nine to five? Or how do you even get a nine to five? So all that good stuff will be on our new podcast. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I got a story for you guys today. So let's dive into it. All right. So, setting the stage, if you guys want to dust off your high school knowledge of the presidents in US history. So, Andrew Jackson was the seventh president of the United States. And when he was president, his entire cabinet, so the presidential cabinet, which we'll get into what exactly that means in a bit. So, his entire cabinet, except for one person, resigned over. A woman, okay, a woman caused the entire cabinet to dissolve, and her name was Peggy Eaton. This is her story. Today on the pod, I will be going into, in great detail, the petticoat affair, as it's called. But backing up before we get into the whole shebang, I wanna just kind of debunk, talk about what a petticoat is, because I was totally wrong with what I assumed it was. Like, what the heck is a petticoat? really and google told me it's a light loose undergarment that hangs either from the shoulders or the waist worn under a woman's skirt or dress way back in the day and I was just under the impression that a petticoat was like the hoop skirt situation, like the whole thing was called a petticoat, but a petticoat was essentially like a woman's underwear before Victoria's Secret, okay? Before we had lingerie and all that, like this was the option we had. And the hoop petticoat, which is what I kind of imagined the whole thing to be, actually made its debut in England at the beginning of the 18th century which welcomed A, a fashion explosion, and B, surprisingly, a lot of side eye from the men. People thought petticoats were scandalous. Like, okay. Meanwhile, it's like we wear all sorts of things nowadays. People can basically walk around naked and a petticoat that covered a woman's entire body was apparently scandalous for some reason. But this isn't at all surprising because apparently everything women did that was new and different was met with some criticism before it was ultimately accepted. Like we can think about my episode on the bikini and where that came from. Like people were repulsed by bikinis back in the day. And now, you know, guys put pictures of girls in bikinis on their dorm room walls. So, you know, it always comes with a lot of scrutiny at first and then it's accepted. So the hoop petticoat. So basically like that bell shaped kind of contraption that a woman would wear and then put her petticoat so her undergarment layer on top and then put the dresser skirt over top of the reason for the hoop the reason why it was invented was to give a woman better mobility so they could walk without tripping over their skirts because it quite literally put the edges of their skirt further away from their feet so they wouldn't trip that, number one. And also it gave them better ventilation under there. They could actually breathe. Like their lower part of their body wasn't like on fire 24 seven because it was trapped under all of these layers of fabric. And because of trade and things like that, you know, fabrics were getting lighter. Women were just getting to be more comfortable in their outfits. So this should be a good thing. But of course it was met with scrutiny. So like I said, it's like the hoop skirt goes on first. It's laced under the bottom of a woman's corset. So she's still wearing a corset which is like super tight and suffocating and then the petticoat garment would go on top of the hoop and then the outfit on top of that. And get this, even though these garments were floor length, literally masking the woman's entire body shape, like you could not tell what her butt looked like under there at all, the men of the time had the audacity to say that they were scandalous, they were quote criminal. In a time before drawers and panties, petticoats, quote, provided European men with their first glimpse of female legs, according to this fashion and textile historian named Kimberly Chrisman. So the petticoats were shaped by whalebone, wire, wicker, and wood, and enabled the diameter of skirts to puff out up to six feet. And the lightweight hoop petticoat, writes Chrisman, she wrote this amazing piece on this, was easily upset by the wind, Falls or sudden movements, so that the underclothing and even bare flesh, whoa, crazy, became scandalously visible. So, women who were on the bolder side would sashay in their hoop skirts to show off a little sliver of their ankles here and there. And the ankles were scandalous. Like, th- it was the ankles <laughs> that men had never seen before, which is just really great to set the stage for our story today. Like, this is necessary information to understand why this story is called The Petticoat Affair. Today, we'll be talking about Peggy Eaton and how her flaws, in quotation marks, her quote, flaws led to the disintegration of an entire presidential cabinet. And for a quick little history refresher, I told you guys I would tell you more about the cabinet because honestly, I kind of like vaguely know what it is. I like probably should know more, but that's one of the things from history class that kind of like you know, slipped my mind as soon as I graduated. So the cabinet of the United States consists of the vice president of the U.S. and the heads of the executive branches departments, So like commerce, defense, education, et cetera. And it took one woman to break an entire cabinet. Margaret Peggy O'Neill Was born December 3rd, 1799, and she was the oldest of six children born to William and Rhoda Howell O'Neill. Peggy's father, William, was the owner of this house called Franklin House, which is a popular, or was, a popular Washington, D.C. boarding house and social center for politicians. And it was in the Franklin house where Peggy was able to observe politics as a woman, which is kind of crazy for the time, developed opinions and such that was just unheard of for women. She helped out in the bar. She learned the piano and performed, and she charmed many of the tenants. Peggy was vivacious and well-educated, but she was also suspected of having many illicit affairs, Taylor Swift style, before her first marriage. Sources I read said that she was, quote, openly flirtatious and, you know, it was very sexual. But honestly, like, I don't know how, <laughs> how legit this is because obviously the members or the, the the tenants, rather, that stayed at this house were all men. So, like, obviously they're going to say things like that about a woman who just didn't act like other women of the time, who had opinions, who performed, who was very just visual, open, there, like, present amongst all these men. So at age 15, she actually almost eloped with major Francis Smith Belton, but her plan was foiled because get this, she tried to sneak out of the house, like in the middle of the night to run off with this guy, you know, a classic, like young, like wanted to run off with this guy and get married and have a beautiful love affair or whatever. And you know, she in the process of trying to sneak out of the house, knocked over a large flower vase and woke up her dad in the process. And her dad was like, absolutely not like you are not marrying this guy, even though he's like of a respectful station. She's like, he's like, you're too young, whatever. But only a year later in 1816. So she was 17 at this time. She ended up meeting this guy named John Timberlake, who is a 39 year old officer. She's 17. This guy's 39. He was a 39 year old officer in the United States states navy and he handled money on board vessels and within a month of meeting they were married but just a year prior she had tried to run run away with that other guy and her dad was like no you're too young to elope but it can be assumed he kind of was like all right She's going to do this. She wants to do this. Let's just let her because it's probably better to have her safely married than escaping the house in the middle of the night, like knocking over vases and whatever. But she wouldn't end up venturing too far from her parents. They actually gifted her and her husband, John, a townhouse across from the boarding house. So keeping her nearby was probably the best situation for them. And it was because of this that Peggy and John were still able to socialize with many of the politicians who stayed at Franklin House. And in 1818, the couple befriended John Henry Eaton, a handsome and wealthy 28-year-old widower and newly elected U.S. Senator from Tennessee. So just a few years into their marriage, John and Peggy soon ran into a bunch of financial problems. John had opened a store, but it was unsuccessful and he was falling deeply into debt. And so Senator Eaton, the couple's new friend that I mentioned that they had just met in the tavern and the boarding house, also named John. So John Eaton, John Timberlake, two different guys. John Timberlake was Peggy's husband and John Eaton was the senator from Tennessee. So John Eaton, the senator, wanted to help them out. He wanted to help John Timberlake, so Peggy's husband, petition the government to reimburse him for the losses that he sustained while he was at sea. But sadly, it didn't end up turning things into John's favor and he was still drowning in debt like it didn't work out. So he actually felt that he had no other choice but to return to sea to support his family. He had kids at this time and he had Peggy to support. So he was like, I just got to go back to sea and make some money. So he asked John Eaton to take care of Peggy and their two daughters if anything should happen to him while he was at sea. So Peggy put in some work also on her end to help her family's financial situation back on land. She continued to work at her parents' boarding house and served in the tavern, did some odd jobs, things like that, to also support the family. So Peggy first came into contact with this guy named Andrew Jackson in December of 1823. He was traveling to Washington as the new junior senator from Tennessee, and he boarded at Franklin House. So Andrew Jackson and Senator Eaton, so the friend of Peggy's who was keeping an eye on her and the kids, well, the husband was gone. They all became very good friends. But classically, you can imagine Peggy being escorted by this other man, while, she's married this other guy who' was a widower, like being closely associated with her while she already had a not so great reputation of being flirty and whatever. like it wasn't good for the rumor mill. So rumors began to swirl that the two, so John Eaton and Peggy were secretly lovers. So when John Timberlake, Peggy's legal husband and the father of her two daughters, died of pulmonary disease in 1828 in April while serving in Europe aboard the USS Constitution, the townspeople had a frickin' field day. This event that Peggy could not have possibly planned nearly confirmed the rumors. But Peggy, a woman in the 1820s whose rights were slim to none, needed to remarry. She needed to marry again and fast for her family's well-being. So with the encouragement of her new friend, Andrew Jackson, who became president, Peggy married his good friend, also from Tennessee, Senator John Eaton, on January 1st, 1829. Jackson also made John Secretary of War, giving him a ton of power in the Capitol. And it's possible that President Jackson gave John this title to quiet the rumors that implicated his new wife and family but it just made things worse. This petticoat affair was the talk of the town and not in a good way. According to social cues of the time, a widow should remain in mourning wearing black clothing for at least a year before even considering remarrying, which is kind of crazy if you think about it because They were forced to mourn their husband who obviously like they missed dearly for the most part, maybe not all the time, but like they probably missed their husbands and were sad about it, but still had to carry on. They still had to make money. They still had to support themselves, but they had very like slim chances of doing that on their own. They needed to remarry. So Peggy, this woman with a very humble upbringing who worked in a bar who allegedly committed adultery with a man while she was married, which was never confirmed who remarried only eight short months after her ex-husband passed away, who is now the wife of the Secretary of War, she was easy to hate by the other cabinet members' wives and other Washington-based women, hostesses, etc. So in this letter written on New Year's Day, 1829, Margaret Bayard Smith, a Washington society maven and wife of a newspaperman, said this of Peggy. Tonight, General Eaton, the bosom friend and almost adopted son of General Jackson, is to be married to a lady whose reputation, her previous connection with him both before and after her husband's death, has been totally destroyed. She has never been admitted into good society. She's very handsome and not of an inspiring character and violent temper. She is, it is said, irresistible and carries whatever point she sets her mind on. The general's personal and political friends are very much disturbed about it. The ladies declare they will not go to the wedding, and if they can help it, will not let their husbands go. I like bolded when I wrote this in my notes, the end if they can help it part, because I'm like, obviously they can't control their husbands. This is the 1820s, but they certainly tried to forbid their, their husbands to go to the wedding. So most of Jackson's cabinet members supported their wives' take on Eaton. It was the wives that were just so <laughs> against this, this union. They were against admitting her into their circle of cabinet wives. Like they were so against this woman because she was different from the women of her time because she had these opinions. She spoke her mind. She was firm in her beliefs and maybe just a little bit bold in how she expressed herself AKA why this woman said that she had this violent temper. It probably was because she was very firm in her ways. And that's like not a bad thing. But at the time, a woman's job was to sit still, look pretty, agree with everybody else and raise the kids like that was really it. So second lady, fluoride or fluoride. I I really feel like her name is not fluoride, but it's spelled (laughs) like fluoride. Floride Calhoun, wife of Vice President John Calhoun, refused to even be in Washington D.C. While Peggy was a quote cabinet wife, so she wouldn't even step foot in the Capitol because she was like very firmly against Peggy. Emily Donaldson Jackson's niece and the official hostess of the White House since Rachel Jackson, the the wife, had passed away, likewise hated Peggy, and they believed contact with a sinner would harm their own reputations. The president, however, stood by Peggy, declaring, I did not come here to make a cabinet for the ladies of this place. Andrew Jackson had a bit of empathy for Peggy and the reasons really hit close to home for him. So Rachel Jackson, like I said, she passed away, but she'd also been a victim of malicious attacks on her during the 1828 presidential campaign. People thought Rachel, Rachel Jackson, the wife of Andrew Jackson, to be adulterous and scandalous for a similar reason. Rachel had also been divorced. Her and her first husband filed for divorce, and she was under the impression that she was legally divorced and that being said, she was a free woman. So she married Andrew Jackson only to discover two years later that the divorce from her first husband had not been fully carried out legally. So, of course, everyone went wild with this. Everyone against the campaign, you know, other women that she was going to be alongside if he were to get the presidency. She was an outcast. People thought she was adulterous and it wasn't her fault. Just before her death, her physical and mental health had been so deteriorated from the relentless Stress that this put on her, that she actually suffered a near fatal heart attack. And it seemed like she was recovering after the heart attack and even had gotten a dress for her husband's inauguration ball. But she died suddenly on December 22nd, 1828, at age 61, just two months before Andrew Jackson took office as president. And he was so devastated about his wife's sudden passing and furious at the women and tabloids of Washington for causing. The heart attack so he stood up for Peggy but Peggy definitely did not make Andrew Jackson's job in defending the Eatons easy whatsoever like I said she was unlike the women of her time at a time when women were supposed to be reserved feminine soft and quiet sit still look pretty mentality Peggy was bold and outspoken she was firm and unwilling to change for anyone Martin Van Buren saw that Peggy Eaton had become a liability for the Democrats, and her antics were taking a toll on President Andrew Jackson himself. And he was taking a lot of heat from his own family, Van Buren was, for Peggy's proximity to the cabinet. And as historian Kristen E. Wood wrote in a piece on The Petticoat Affair, Christian morality and Republican political theory both suggested that political and sexual virtue were essential to social order. So having someone as shifty and loud as Peggy Eaton, as a cabinet wife, was not good for ratings. The media was having a field day and the lack of control and relentless rumors weakened the administration. So Martin Van Buren got together with John Eaton and essentially told him it would be for the best if they just both stepped down from the cabinet. And if both of them stepped down, that would permit the president to ask the remainder of the cabinet to relinquish their seats as well, essentially giving him a clean slate since the cabinet was so overwhelmed with scandal that was getting in the way of politics. And this sent shockwaves through the Capitol. Some people predicted that this wipe of the cabinet would cause a total governmental collapse. Newspapers were quick to trace the whole thing back to Peggy, likely through some trustworthy female sources, aka the angry cabinet members' bitter wives, and this gave birth to a popular toast for the time that went like this. To the next cabinet, may they all be bachelors or leave their wives at home. So when the cabinet dissolved and things were stressful AF in D.C., Peggy and John got out of there. They booked it to the beautiful city of Madrid, where he served there as U.S. minister. And he passed away eventually and left behind a small fortune for Peggy. All indications point to that they had a good marriage up until his death. Like It doesn't seem like anything went wrong during that time. But three years after his death, she married a third and final time to Italian music teacher and dancing instructor Antonio Gabriele Bukinani. She was 59 and he was 19. For a few years, the marriage seemed stable. Antonio worked at the Library of Congress during the Civil War, but after the war, he demanded that they move to New York and that Peggy give him $20,000 to start a business, which... <laughs> Obviously sounds a bit weird. The business whatever it was failed and Antonio threatened to leave Peggy and go back to Europe unless she signed her entire fortune that John had left her over to him and she did it. She was in her 60s at this point. In 1866, so their 7th year of marriage, Antonio Hate him, he ran off to Europe, the very thing he said that he would not do, with the bulk of Peggy's fortune, as well as Peggy's 17-year-old granddaughter, Emily Randolph. Antonio married, <laughs> he married Emily, Peggy's granddaughter, after she finally divorced him in 1869. Peggy O'Neill Timberlake Eaton Bukinani died in poverty at Lokiel House, a home for destitute women, on November 8, 1879. She was 79-ish years old. A sad ending to this story because honestly, guys, I wonder what would have come of Peggy if she were born just like a century or two later? Like, would she have become a politician herself? Would she have relied less on men and opened her own tavern or done something? Like, she had this really powerful spirit to her and firmness. Like, the, the possibilities that she could have... Done the things she could have done if she was just born a bit later, like in a time where women were respected more. Who knows? The story of Peggy Eaton honestly reminds me a lot of Easy A, the movie or The Scarlet Letter, the book that the film is based on. Like how drama and the opinions of others, the rumors that people can tell that alter history. Andrew Jackson's cabinet dissolving over one quote, scandalous woman altered history. Like, you might recall that I said Martin Van Buren had taken the lead in dropping out of the cabinet, convincing John Eaton to go as well. Like, he was kind of the mastermind behind that plan. And Van Buren had actually always been kind to Peggy, gracious to her notoriously, while many of the cabinet members with their angry wives in their ear shunned her. So it was likely because of the way that he treated the Eatons and the initiative that he took to smooth things over in the cabinet that President Jackson chose Van Buren to run for vice president in 1832 and then supported him for president just four years later. Van Buren went on to become the eighth president of the United States right behind Andrew Jackson. And a lot of it had to do with a loud, unflinching, potentially adulterous former barmaid named Peggy Eaton. A woman has the power, guys, to change history. Never forget that. And it's actually interesting because she went on to be buried in the cemetery next to John Eaton like she was in the plot next to John Eaton but in the cemetery where a lot of the cabinet members and their wives were buried which is funny to me because i'm like okay all these women and their husbands that like hated her are now with her forever <laughs> like they are buried n- like near or next to her like in the same cemetery the woman that they all hated that went on to shape politics it's very interesting So yeah, I wonder what would have become of Peggy if she were born in our time. I mean, certainly there are women that have the same spirit that Peggy did now. And although, I mean, it's definitely not, the the war is not over in the sense that like women are still shunned and, you know, talked about on social media and just, you know, made fun of for having bold personalities, for acting like men do, literally Taylor Swift's the man. I want to play it because it's so so valid in this way like what would what would happen if if everyone was on an even playing field? Not to mention obviously there's a difference between men and women, but like also minorities. Like there's just so many inequalities in the way that people are perceived and it's just obviously it's one of those things where every, it's an obvious thing. It's an obvious problem that everyone knows about. So it feels silly to say like, obviously there's a big inequality problem all over the world, but here in the US, it's just so glaring to me. And that's why I love history. That's why I love reading these stories. That's why I love researching these and sharing them with you guys, because it just makes it even more obvious and makes me even more angry and anger fuels change. Okay. Anger pointed towards valid points and coming up with solutions, you know, furthers change. And it's just, ah, it's just so baffling to me. I really would love to meet Peggy. I'm kind of really pissed at that music teacher guy that robbed her and took her granddaughter, Like, I wonder what became of him. I hope that something not so great (laughs) became of him. Anyway, uh, so that is my story or Peggy's story. That is uh, my episode, guys. Hope you all enjoyed this episode of the podcast and this story about another bold woman from history. And I will talk to you guys all next Thursday. Bye.